in Colossians chapter 1 as uh, we are, we're going through this, this, mighty, this mighty book. And so far, all we've been doing since the very beginning of this book has been taking up speed, has been building speed. I don't know whether you have ever uh, tried or trialed or back in uh, high school if you tried to be cool and do what uh, was a fad in our day. And that was uh, in our day, you know, way back when, back in my day, which was longboarding. Can I just get a show of hands? Anybody tried, uh, tried the, the, the longboarding? You buy a pair of vans, you get some high socks. Yeah, okay. Losers. And so we, um, well, we did. I built my own. And we, you know, what, what, what happened a couple of times was, was uh, I had the guts to go downhill and, uh, and, and, and uh, got up a whole heap of speed, found some really nice hills. And it was, you know, where are you fastest at the, at the point of going down the hill? It's towards the bottom. And where are you starting to get a little bit more control and a little bit more uh, slowing down is, of course, as you, you go back up the hill, unless, of course, that, that hill is a ramp, which I have not ever uh, done in my time. But twice when I was uh, trying to ride, I was going down right towards the bottom of the hill at the fastest point. I tried to just lightly step off the board and gather my, my balance and, of course, ate the dirt and went into a bush. My brother has the better story. He was going down a hill up on the sunny coast, and he was, on, he was actually on a little short Z-Flex board, you know, the ones you get from... Um, City Beach, and uh, probably four bucks worth of plastic and that, and he was riding down, and he got the speed wobbles, and started going, and more and more, his body was shaking, and he tried to step off right at the bottom of the hill, where he was going the fastest, and he ate concrete, he, uh, he fell down, uh, and just slid for about three meters flat, uh, to a direct grinding halt, and just had gravel coming out of scabs for weeks, it was awesome, the point is, the very, the very tangential point is, you pick up speed as you go down a hill. Is that pretty clear? Did I need any illustrations for that? No, I didn't. But the point is that Paul has been so far just picking up speed. And, and he's picking up speed for what we're going to hit next week, which is really the crux, really the, the focal point of, of all the theology in Colossians being applied. So far, he's been saying, it's been greetings, it's been thanks to God, it's been praises, it's been prayers. But, but all that it's been doing is getting us, is building pace and, and building speed for what we hit next week, which is that we are reconciled in the body of Jesus, that we are cut off in his being cut off, that we are justified in his condemnation, that we have salvation because of what Jesus did on the cross. But before we get there, and we do dabble in that a bit tonight, of course, Glory, hallelujah. But before we get to the section of verse 21 through 23, I believe, today is more about not, not, not the act of dying, not, not everything about what justification is and how it is accomplished in the cross, but actually who it is that died, who it is that went to the cross, whose blood it was that was shed. That's the point tonight. And so we are at that point as Paul is, as Paul is coming full speed down the hill in order to, to go up the ramp of, of the cross and justification and Jesus' death and resurrection. Before he gets there, we are at that, that, the fastest point of the ramp right now tonight. The person, the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Who was he? Who is he? What is his nature? What is his person? And tonight we're going to see, I'll, I'll read it for us, but we're going to see that he is presented to us Twofold, in two different ways. Firstly, that Jesus is creator. And secondly, that Jesus is redeemer. That he is sufficient. That he is, he is all. That he is everything in creation. And that he is everything in redemption. 
Read with me. You follow along in Colossians 1 verse 15 as I read. Hear now the voice of the living God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God bless this word to our midst this evening. Amen. Jesus, presented to us by Paul here tonight, is explicitly, he is powerfully, unquestionably God. Jesus is God. Every heresy, every, almost every heresy that pops up through church history finds its fault ultimately here. It, it might say that, it might agree with that on paper, but technically where they're, they're going with that is all wrong. You will, you will have no assurance, no security, no joy in the Christian life if, you're not can, if you cannot, with all of your power that you can muster, with all that you can amen from your spirit say that Jesus is unquestionably, unqualifiably God. I spent some time in my early Christian life denying that. Yeah, you're patient, you're gracious, not going not to get me for it. I spent my, I, I was probably 18 and I spent about, about six months, I had, I, I, I had encountered, a, actually it was, a, it was somebody in, in, a, in a family uh, scenario that I had known somewhat and I only met them a few times, but they had, they had done enough damage to my, to my uh, theology of Jesus, to what I had grown up, I, I thought believing that I, I just could not utter the phrase that Jesus is God. He's God's son. I loved that. I was fine with that. But that he is God the son felt felt erroneous, that, that, that Jesus is God, I just couldn't muster. This is, this is the danger of an untaught church. I was a church boy. I was a Bible kid. I thought I was a Sunday school kid. Some of you guys are the same. You, you've been in church 20 years, 15 years, all your life, but if you were pinned, like me, on why you think Jesus is God, more than just because Mrs. Smith and Sunday school told you, more than just because Pastor Bob told you that it's a fact. Show me in Scripture, since you're a Bible person, that Jesus is unqualifiably God and, and not just sort of a, a, a slightly removed son of God. And I, and I couldn't do it. It was, that, it was that I knew some things about Scripture, but I didn't know Scripture myself. And, and I tell you that in, in, to the degree in which I could not affirm that, I could not amen that, I could not understand that, it, it was really just a, a problem with my understanding of the Trinity. I was making category errors. But, but, but in as much as I questioned that, I also questioned my own salvation. Jesus gives no assurance of salvation outside of assurance of Jesus. God gives to us no enjoyment of salvation where we are trying to find it outside of the fullness of the truth of Jesus. And, and some of us, like the Colossian heretics, some of us like, like the Colossian church, we're just, I know I once believed that. I, I know that that's, that's supposedly a pretty important doctrine of, of the church, but there's just, isn't there, isn't there really convincing folk that knock on your door Saturday morning in a suit and tie with a little book and a magazine and they want to come in for coffee and they, they can run circles around us sometimes? 
Isn't there a friend at church, at work, I mean, who's, who's, who's quite evangelistic and they're, they're what we call latter-day Christians. They're totally Christians, don't question any more than that. Where and they're Mormons, they're a cult, they're, non, they're not saved. And, and there's others and there's all these sorts of, of manifestations of people who deny the true divinity of Jesus Christ. And they are unsaved, heretical, in as much as their profession really matches their belief. And this is one of those verses that is entirely flipped on its head if we don't have right biblical teaching. We come to a verse like verse 15 and 16 in Colossians chapter 1, and what it does to us is is actually start asking questions about, is Jesus really God? I mean, he must be God despite what Paul says here, because this sounds a lot like him being the first created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. If we don't have right theology, right understand, right biblical, scriptural theology, you'll read this and it will tell you the exact opposite as what it's supposed to be telling. So let's read it again and see whether or not you are filled with assurance and absolute certainty that Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we start getting just a little bit, little bit uncomfortable. We shuffle in our seats. What does, it, what does he mean, image of God? Why didn't he just say he's God? That, that's a question. Maybe that means he's, he's not God, or maybe that just makes us a little bit confused. And, and then he goes and says that he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the first thing made in creation. Is this, is this what's being communicated? Friends, the answer is no. If you understand Paul and, and what he's saying here, you understand that he, he is by no means saying that Jesus could ever be anything other than absolutely God. First reason is because he is the image of the invisible God. Now, we have a, we have a doctrine for, for image, and, and what, what we would do uh, problematically is if you think image and you think bad copy of, right? There's, there's the original that gets printed out first, and then there's the hundred bad copies that you give to the kids to color in. Or there's the, you know, whatever. There's the original and then the really bad copy. The, there's, 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 there's the true and then there's a, a somewhat removed faulty copy. That, that's not what we mean by image in Paul's language. What he means by, by image is a highly exalted title. We have an image, uh, sorry, we have a theology, don't we, of the image of God. But that which gives value to every human being, no matter whether they're one cell in a mother's womb whether they're uh, of, of, across any spectrum of color or race or, 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 or riches or background or what they've done. Everybody holds that supreme value in being a human because you carry the image of the laws of biology as, as, these, as these little God doctrine teachers teach in the New Apostolic Reformation that, that when God creates something, he, he always creates a mini hymn. No, no, not at all. What we mean by image of God is that we have a value we have some, some form of capacity that is that our intellect, our, our emotions, our relational ability to love and create and, and all of that, but a large portion of it, when you read the Genesis account, when you see how Scripture speaks of the Genesis account, a large portion of image of God is also a delegated authority. When Adam was made in the image of God, it was his job to then, to then act out in God's delegated authority what God had commanded him to do to take dominion over the world because the world was now under his authority because he was in the image of God. Here's the problem. Not the problem, but the distinction is that Adam and all humans are made in the image of God. 
In the, to, to, to be like the image of God, we are never said, we are never said to be the image of God. We have a likeness, not a sameness. The Son has a sameness in nature. It is that He is the image, not made in the image, not like the image, not that if you, you look at Him and squint, you can kind of make out God, but that He is the exact image image of God. This is even clearer for us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of the Hebrews says this, speaking of the Son, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is the image of God. He, he does not, just like Adam, have a portion of the image. He does not just like, like Adam have a, or in the ocean, nothing that walks, nothing that flies. Nothing you find in creation will be anything but an absolute insult to God when you say, this is an okay representation. If the second commandment holds true, it is blasphemy for Paul to say that anything other than God is the true and absolute image of God. Only God can exhaustively image God. When Paul says that he is the image of God, like the writer in the Hebrews, the exact imprint of his nature, he is exalting Jesus to not simply be one divine being up there, or one of the angels, one of the, one of the super spiritual beings. No, he is saying he is the God. He is Yahweh. He is the second person of the eternal Trinity. Secondly, let's move to the next part. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, our minds start thinking, what he's firstborn? We just break the word up and go, obviously, that means he was born first. Sorry, English students, that's not how language works in Scripture. What does the Scripture mean by the language of firstborn? It is not speaking of, of, of a chronology of when you were born. When Mostly, when the Bible speaks of firstborn, it's meaning status. It's talking about rank. In fact, sometimes God does this in, in precisely confusing ways when he calls people that were literally born last the firstborn. Isaac and, and Jacob. It was Jacob born second who inherited the rights of the Firstborn, he became the firstborn, not because he was born first, but because he, he carried that status given by God. In fact, God says in Psalm 89, verse 27, he calls David, King David. He says, I will make him my firstborn in the Greek of the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament. We say, well, see, that doesn't work because David is neither the first king. And in fact, don't you remember the story? David is literally the last born in his family. In what sense is David the firstborn? Is that he is called by God to carry the inheritance, to be the ruler, to be elevated to the status of all the promises given to Israel. He's the firstborn in status, in rank, not in order of creation. That's not what's being said of Jesus. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, of course, if, and, the, and the Hebrew world, to be firstborn means you inherit everything that belongs to your father. You inherit the status, you inherit the authority, you inherit all that he owns. You're the firstborn, it all goes to you. The question that Paul is answering is, what belongs to Jesus? What rank does he rule over? What things are under his authority and in the inheritance that goes to Jesus? What is it? 
What is he the firstborn of? What does he have rank and status over friends? He is firstborn of all creation. What belongs to Jesus because of his high and lifted status? The universe. That's what belongs to Jesus. None of this nonsense of Jesus being the great God of, of, of that country or this Western nation. Oh, baby, you know, all other gods have, have sort of their sovereignties. Absolute rubbish. Jesus alone carries absolute sovereignty and lordship since he is now seated at the Father's right hand. <clears throat> to speak of firstborn here is to give him this glorious, uplifted, godly status. We can go further. In verse 16, we know for a fact that verse 15 doesn't mean that he's the firstborn among creation, that he's the first created thing. It doesn't mean that. Because verse 16 goes on to give us only two categories of being. You can follow me here. It becomes a powerful apologetic. He gives us only two categories of being. The category called created things and the category called uncreated things. Now, a little bit of audience interaction here. What belongs in the category? Who belongs in the category? What is the only thing that belongs in the category of uncreated beings? God. God alone is uncreated. What then belongs in the category of created things? Literally everything else. But Colossians 1.16 gives us another title for, instead of saying created things, we can call them made by Jesus things. Because look at verse 16. He says, for by him, all things were created. What things? All things. All things that were created were created by him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things, in case you didn't hear them the first time, all things were created through him and for him. Go to John chapter 1, verse 3. Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 3. And here John uses the exact same literary technique as Paul did. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of John, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you debate your Jehovah's Witnesses friends on that. You start getting, because it says the Word is the one that came into the world to die. That's Jesus. Jesus was God. But they'll whip out their New World translation, their, 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 uh, their flexible, slippery little thing, and go, well, actually, it's the Word was a God, not God. He was, he was a slightly removed God, you know. Two-thirds of God. And you can try and debate the Greek with them, pretend you know any of it, and, and uh, they'll come back with all of their rehearsed answers about why, no, really, the, 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 the participle should be here, a God, not, not truly, a, not the God. And, and you can argue till you're both blue in the face there. Or, save yourself some breath, drop down two verses. Verse 3. <clears throat> all things were made through him. What things? All things. And without him was not anything made that was made. So here you have the two categories. Made, unmade. Created things, God. Where does Jesus go? Since both John and Paul just said that Jesus made everything in the category of made. Everything created, created by Jesus. Everything made, made by Jesus. Now, was Jesus made or unmade? 
Well, he can't have been made, friends. If he was made, then he made himself because nothing was made without him. So, of course, he made himself to make himself to then make everything else. Logic denies the possibility of that one. No, where do we put Jesus? This, this, this shocking reality that where we put Jesus is in the category of unmade. The category of creator. The category that is, in, in, that is lived in, that is, that is occupied by nobody but God. Jesus is not, is not just another being in there with God. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus created all things. He is thereby saying in this verse 16, the firstborn of all creation does not mean the first created thing. It means the inheritor, the ruler, the Lord over all of creation. That is what Paul is saying. Shake away any of the heretical, any of the questioning doubts that you have in your mind about the divinity of Christ or throw scripture out altogether. But the Bible is clear. Jesus is God. And we can see another reason that he is saying that, that, that we can draw this conclusion at the end of verse 16. He says, All things were created through him and for him. What a blasphemous thing it would be for God to make all things for, to give to, for the sake of, to give glory to anyone other than him. He himself would be breaking the first commandment. Have no other gods beside him. He would be demanding that all creation gives its glory to, gives its worship to somebody we're commanded not to worship in the first commandment. Somebody other than God. But if God has made all things for him, to to point to him, to exalt him, then the him here must also be God. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6. It shows us the the inappropriateness, the the, the wild inappropriateness that it would be for God to point direct, to to direct worship to any but himself. In chapter 1, verse 6 of Hebrews, it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, his son, when he brings the son into the world, the the firstborn, the, the one of high status and rank, when he brings him into the world, he says, quoting an Old Testament passage, Let all God's angels worship him. The argument of Hebrews chapter 1, and stay there because we'll go there in a moment, but the argument of Hebrews chapter 1 is, look at all the things that God has ever said about the Son and realize that the Son must be God because no one has ever been spoken of the way that the Son has been spoken of and not be God. I mean, God the Father is committing blasphemy if he tells his angels when, when the firstborn son, when, the, when God the Son comes into the world, if he says all angels worship him, he himself is commanding blasphemy. But if the son, if the firstborn is God, then it is right that God direct worship unto him. It is right that all things be created for his sake. Jesus is, and Paul would have us, Paul would have the Colossians settle our mind here, and, and it's going to start being applied. Every, almost every phrase that is listed in these verses tonight is picked up and applied further later on in the book of Colossians. This is, this is like the contents page for the book of Colossians. And the first, most important point that he is making is that Jesus is God, and as God, he created all things. Now, the Colossian heretics were a little bit sneaky. And they were actually willing to agree to like 99% of that. And say, yeah, of course, Jesus created everything you can see. You see something, Jesus made it. No doubt, Jesus created. But, 
but, but there's invisible realities, okay? There was, there was things that were created before Jesus. You know, the, the Colossian heretics believed in, it seems from what we can gather from the writing, that, that they believed in this pleroma of gods that the Gnostics came to teach about. If none of that made sense, hear me out. They, they believed that there was one supreme divine being and he created another god. And then he created another god and then he created another god and, and, and it went down so many generations so many emanations, they would call it. The, and there was all of these copies, these versions of God. And they, they were all a little bit God. They weren't all the fullness of God, of course, because there's, there's only so many slices of pie. And they would say that, that, that the perfect God would never create the world because physical matter is evil. Your body, marital relations, food, the sun, it's all evil. The great joy that they would have is that one day they'll be released from this earth, all of the physical realm will be swept into hell and will just float around as disembodied spirits because they didn't realize the goodness of God's creation. But they would teach that the, 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 the true God, the first God, he would never create the world. Neither would his stepson, neither would that stepson, neither would that. And so down it goes until there was one God removed enough from purity, yet related enough to be powerful that he created the physical world this cursed, disgusting, physical creation. What Paul is saying of Jesus, what Paul is saying here against the Colossian heretics who, who believed in all of this and wanted, therefore, to, to be able to worship the different portions of, of God, who, who wanted to be able to worship, uh, worship God but, but not Jesus Christ, is that, is that he is the creator of all things, that he is, the, he, is, he is pushing back against all of their 99% all of their, their correct Christology, which said, yes, he's God, but he's, he's a God, and he's right down this end of the spectrum of God. He's not, he's not fully God, and therefore we need to access these other gods. There's other things that we need to do. And Paul's stopping them dead in their tracks before the, before the hooks of the heresy can ever get in. And he reminds his Colossian church, there is only one God, and he exists in three persons, the eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal spirit, none of whom ever had a beginning, all of whom were active in creation, Jesus being that one through whom God created the world. He's the firstborn. He reigns over it and he calls it good. So he grounds them in the reality of Jesus' divinity. Now look at verse 17. Keep a thumb in Hebrews. We'll go back there in just a second. But in verse 17, he then says, but not that Jesus has created the world and forgot about it. You know, I sit and forget. He put a timer on the thing. He, he, he said it and now he sits back, but still active in every waking moment of the divine being, the Son holds all things together. That he sustains the universe. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Go back to Hebrews. Not only that God is creator, but that he also sustains the reality that he has created. And also, Hebrews says, in verse 3, he is the exact radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every millisecond that goes by, the universe is held in its, in its near infinite glories and complexities by Jesus Christ the divine, eternal son. What an amazing thought. 
And when you came in, you weren't, you weren't just coming in to, to remember some truths about some Jew from 2,000 years ago. You, you weren't coming in to, to just remember a, a, a few things about a meek and mild little lamb. You come in, you worship, you hear from, you fellowship around the reality that the creator of the universe is our saviour. That Jesus is God and, and indestructible. That Jesus is God and undefeatable. That Jesus is God and unquestionable in his sovereignty and in his lordship. That's the Jesus that we worship. And while Paul's sitting here in house arrest in Rome, writing to a poor and somewhat insignificant city, to an insignificant portion of that city called the Colossian church, to him he writes and says, there is nothing insignificant about Christianity. There is nothing, nothing tangential about Christianity. This is the reason for which the world exists. He's saying to them, though they're distracted, though they're tempted, though they're weak, Jesus is not. You think he's going to struggle holding your salvation together? Like, you're a failure. I'll, I'll admit that. You'll, you sin, sure. You're pretty weak compared to what you're called to do. You, you frequently fail to live out the, the reality of having the strength of God's glorious might, as we looked at last week. Of course, you, you don't pray when you should pray. You don't read the Bible like you should read the Bible. You're not as loving as you should be loving. You don't obey like you should obey. All of that is absolutely true. But I don't think you'll hold, you're harder to hold together than the universe. And Jesus does that just fine. Jesus does that without breaking a sweat. Your life, though messy, your soul, though weak, is not a concern to him. Verse 17 has gone from, from creation to, to sustenance. Jesus is God. He's the creator. But it's also giving us a bit of a look forward as well. Paul is, in verse 17, speaking backwards and speaking forwards. He says, Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. He is sustainer of that creation, but he's sustainer of all things. And now as he pivots to start talking about redemption, he, he's, as he's saying, Jesus is sustainer of all, he holds all things together, as we just did. He's applying the creative power of Jesus to the fact that he can redeem and uphold redemption. So look at verse 17 again. Verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I don't think that the immediate thing that he means when he says all things hold together, I think he's primarily saying the, all things in creation hold together. I think he's, he's talking primarily about both categories of things hold together by Jesus. He holds together creation, which is everything created, and he holds together redemption. He is, the, he is that divine glue. He is the divine strength that holds the universe in place and holds redemption in place. In that sense, he is he who holds all things together, creation and redemption. And so now look at what he tells us about redemption in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We've just said that Jesus is supreme Lord, authoritative God. He's the creator of all things. This universe belongs to him. And maybe your initial question is, all right, he's so sovereign. He's so good. He's so big. He's so powerful. Why didn't Jesus do something in Genesis 3 when the devil came in? He's the firstborn. If this is all his responsibility, then where was he when, when sin was starting to, to creep into the world? Why did he not stop something? Why, why did the Lord, why did God, the creator, 
not do something about that. This would be a question that heretics throw at the Colossian church. This would be something that the, that the idolaters are throwing. He wasn't able, that's why. He's no God. He's not very good, that's why. He's, he created the world. He's a, pretty, he's a pretty evil God, don't you think? No, friends. Only, only a robust view of the sovereignty of God can answer this question. If Jesus is Lord, if, if the Son is, is reigning and ruling over all things... Why did he allow the devil to come into the garden and bring mankind into sin and and the curse and separation from God? Well, the truth is he didn't allow it. He purposed it. He designed it. He planned it. And verse 18 tells us why. Why, as firstborn over all creation, why did he create the world if he was going to let it fall into sin? Why? So that he might be preeminent. In all things. Not just preeminent. And that word preeminent means supreme, first and foremost. He didn't just want to be preeminent, first and foremost, supreme in creation. That's obviously pretty unique and that's obviously glorious. Not enough for him. He didn't just want to be supreme and preeminent and first and foremost in judgment so that he would let sinners fall and then, and then show off his preeminence and ability to, to pour out the just condemnation upon sinners. He didn't just want that. He became the firstborn from the dead. He became the incarnate Christ who died for sin. He became the head of the body, the church, the new saved people. He did that so that he could be preeminent, so that he could be supreme, not just in creation, not just in justice, but in redemption. He desired, and, and so we see even in the Old Testament, these, these dialogues you would see between the, in, in the Isaiah prophecies between the Father and the Son, and, and the Father say, it would be too small a thing for you to, to go into the world and just save one nation. Oh, it'd be too light a thing for you to go into the world and just save the Israelites. Too glorious thing, far too small for you. Yeah, we can conclude backwards as well. It would be far too small a thing for Jesus to be glorious creator and nothing more. No, the Son of God, as the Father looked upon him in his self-infinite loving love, designed and purposed, that the Son would be glorified through redemption as well, so that he will be preeminent, supreme in all things. As creator, you look at creation, you give him glory. You look at how it holds together and has not yet fallen apart, you give him glory. And you look at salvation, you look at any ounce of redemption and forgiveness of sins and you give Jesus glory. It is all about him. And verse 19, of course, well, well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, it also kind of, it's the key that makes everything else make perfect sense. Verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Of course, when, when you take somebody and you say they died and then they were the firstborn from the dead, they, they resurrect, God raised them back up. That makes zero sense how that connects to the entire universe being redeemed and reconciled to a just and holy God who had once cursed it and hated it. I mean, a man's breath expiring, his blood stopped pumping, his heart died, and then being put in the ground, and then miraculously getting back up. Very cool, no doubt. How in the world does that equal billions and trillions of sinners 
being justified in God's sight. How does that equal trillions of, of bodies being resurrected back to glory? How does that, what does that do to God? Why does God, have you ever thought about, what's the actual equation going on here where a guy died and then woke up and then apparently that makes God happy now? What is it about the death of Jesus, him being first born out of the grave from the dead? What is it about that that brings any effect to our fallen, cursed situation? Well, verse 19 is what? Verse 19 is how? That in him was not just the breath of a man. That in him was not just the blood of a man. That in him was not just the life and the value and the merit of a human. Even a very good human, even a perfect human. But in him was the fullness of God pleasing to dwell. That's why. There's the great, the great old book called in the Latin, Cur Deus Homo, meaning why the God-man. The whole book is, a, is, an answer, is, a, is a questioning and then an answer to the question, why the God-man? Why did God need to become man? Why did we need the mediator, the, self, the savior of our souls? Why did salvation require a God and man composite, a perfect, unmixed, un, unconfused, truly God, truly man being. Why was that necessary? And the answer is it, it is because there was, a, there, was a, there was a God-sized punishment to receive. That, that there's, no, there's not even an end to punishment whenever sinners go to hell. I, I hope you realize that. As you've considered your own soul, that there will never be a point in time when you finish paying off your debt to God. There'll never be a time when you finally, in relief, after millions of years, get to pass out of existence and into some kind of relief. There's no such thing as that. Even the smallest of sins, if we can speak that way, will require an eternal punishment because that punishment needs to be infinite. The reason is because all sins are infinite in their sinfulness, in their unrighteousness, Not because, and where you might feel it's unfair is, not because you've done something infinitely evil. It's not your power that makes sin infinite. It's who it's being sinned against. It's been said, since there is no small God to sin against, there is no small sin. The smallest of sins. The most accidental of sins. The most inconsequential of sins deserves, since they are an, an offense to and a breaking of an infinite God's standards, it will require an infinite punishment. Now, of course, that's, that's what's required just for one person's life. But God had, God had purposed, God had promised, God had decreed that he would save many, many innumerable sinners. In the millions and the billions, he would justify them. And we have to ask again, how? If an infinite sacrifice is required for one person, what could be given for many and millions of souls? And the answer, of course, is only an infinite, eternally valuable sacrifice could justify those souls. God had to become man to pay man's payment because God required a God-sized payment to justify God's law, to to satisfy God's wrath, an infinite, eternal sacrifice had to be made. And that is why the God-man. That is why man could not accomplish, but God had to accomplish for us. That is why verse 19. That is why salvation. That is why the creator 
became man to become redeemer because we required only that. Have you ever looked at your soul? Have you ever read the scriptures and realized that your guilt is far greater than you could ever comprehend? Never going to be one of those preachers to tickle your ears and say, you just aren't that bad. You're worse. But the good news is that all that you required, everything you needed, God already knew. And at the right time, while you were weak, not because you loved him, but because he loved you, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to save those sinners born under the law. You have Jesus, the creator, God, who came into flesh to pay for your sins and being raised up, savior, redeemer. He is able to save your souls. He's able to save any soul and any number of souls that turn to him in faith who believe the good news of what this is telling us. Look at verse 20. God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God brings his own purposes all to completion through being achieved through the reconciliation of Jesus. Now, that word reconciliation, have you ever had a friend that you didn't realize you'd offended and they'd come up and they told you, hey, I know I haven't messaged you in a while. I just want to say, I forgive you. Yeah, mate, look, you're welcome. <laughs> it's been weighing on my heart uh, or... Or maybe this, the pastor uh, preaches a sermon about being nice to the weird person. Then after church, you get like 20 people saying good day to you. What? Okay, hang on. If somebody come up, come up to you and then they say, hey, we can be good again. And you thought you were good. That's going to that's gonna raise some eyebrows. If you have a, a view of, of you and God where you're just pals. You know, he's just so happy with you. He just loves you. Like, you do you. He's your biggest fan. He just wants to bless you. His deepest desire is that you let him heal you. You let him give you money. You let him bless you because you're so great. Even let him save you if you wouldn't mind. Then to say that God can, has reconciled yourself to him will make no sense. Because reconciliation assumes enemies. Reconciliation assumes enmity, rebels, people who hate one another. And don't dare tell me that you as a sinner don't hate God. The Bible says every heart that is not reborn does hate God. And it says that God hates the sinner. That you represent everything he despises. You are against everything he loves, which is his son, and he hates you. And at the same time, he loves you. That he has given the reconciliation that we required. He was our enemy, but he has become the reconciled. Old, Old Testament world and ancient world. And then in fact, even today, we might, have, we might have an empire. We might have an emperor. We might have a, a king ruling over vassal kingdoms or smaller entities. You might have a, a, a superpower and a much smaller member of the commonwealth or whatever it be. And, and when these nations are at odds, when there's reconciliation that needs to happen, when there's enmity... Who comes crawling to who asking that the battle stops? Who comes crawling to who with letters and emissaries and ambassadors saying, please don't drop a bomb on us? Is it, is it the more powerful, offended sovereign that usually begs for mercy and, and asks for reconciliation? 
Or is it the person who has everything to lose? The smaller country, the weaker nation, the rebels. It's always been reconciliation from the offending party. It's always been until you bring something to make me happy, until you bring something to avert my wrath, maybe gold, maybe men, maybe slaves, maybe land, whatever it be, you do something to avert my wrath or we have no reconciliation. There will be no peace. But in God, in God's sovereign plan, there is no such thing as him waiting for us, the offending party, us, the sinners that he's going to crush with his wrath. He doesn't wait for us to bring the sacrifice. He himself brings about redemption at the cost of the death of his own son. He is the offended party. He has nothing to lose by sending us to hell. And yet in his grace, in his mercy, he sends forth his son so that by the blood of Jesus' cross, we have peace. We have reconciliation. We have permanent redemption. <clears throat> the cross, friends. The cross, is it central to how you think? Is it central to what you demand in a church? Is it central to how you relate to God? Is it central to your mind patterns? Is it central to your theology? Is the cross central to your soul? The cross is everything to the true Christian. The cross is everything to the true New Testament Christian. I love that old song, At Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Or the other, when I survey the wondrous cross, how central this is to the thinking of the Christian. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Where every realm of nature mine, my gift would still be far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Alas, and did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown and love beyond degree. My God, why would you shed your blood so pure and undefiled to make a sinful one like me, your chosen precious child? Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. My God, why would you shed your blood so pure and undefiled to make a sinner one like me, your chosen precious child? The cross is so central because the blood of Jesus is so central. 
The blood, nothing but the blood. What is our righteousness, our hope, our peace? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is one of those, those moments when, when a single answer, when all you have is one thing, is the best news of all. If you try and bring anything other than nothing, anything other than the blood of Jesus before God, you'll have nothing. Even try and add to Jesus' perfect works and his perfect blood a little bit of your, your righteousness, a little bit of your merits, your good, good church attendance, and your good law keeping, you will be, you'll be unaccepted. The one thing that God will, will receive, the one thing that justifies the soul is the perfect, infinite, divine, creating, redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as Paul would have us, we set our mind to the cross. And there we find our pride melting. We find our own thinking about our good works. We, think our, we, we find that our own merit, we find our own obedience, everything just shrivels like ash in our hands. We see that at the cross, our best boasting is a waste of time. You leave no room for self-righteousness. We see that at the cross, what our sin deserves, even when it is your own son carrying it, is absolute wrath, cursing, and destruction. We seek, Lord God, we, we, we beg you that you would not let any of us face you alone with our sin. We will, be, we will fare worse than Jesus Christ. We will not be risen from the dead. We will be buried in an eternity of punishment. Lord God, enable us, enable us, even those who, who think themselves Christians, every one of us, no matter our profession, enable every single one of us to, to flee and cling to and love the cross where we find refuge from your wrath, where we find loving, redemptive, redemptive blessings and grace being poured out because you love your son. You are pleased to dwell in him and you are pleased to dwell with all those in him. Father God, would you chase away, would you push away any excuse that anybody is trying to make up in their mind as to why they must not come to Jesus. Remove their, their thoughts of self-righteousness. Remove from them any notion that the world and sin and the flesh have something to offer them. For even if they have pleasure in this life, they will have an eternity of suffering. Father God, remove from us any centrality to the way we think about you other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Not the law. Good as it is, it is not central to our relationship with you. Even our obedience, important, but not central to our relationship with you. Even, even, even creation and, 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 and you being glorified as maker and your justice, none of, none of all those things are the center point by which we can know you. The way we know you is through the blood shed at Calvary that Jesus died for us. May the cross be the center of everything for us. Lord God, may you secure those hearts who tonight are outside of Jesus. Bring them into Jesus. Those who have not been born again, give them new birth. Those who are trying religion, attempting Christianity without being born again, Lord God, would you give to their hearts new life? And we pray that in all of this, you would exalt your son, Jesus Christ, who is the powerful creator and who is the glorious, securing Redeemer who will let go of none of us, just as, just as he, has, he has not been let go of by the Father. For we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the dead, the buried, the resurrected, and the glorious. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.